The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, a man that loves you guys more than Kanye loves Kanye. Jay-Z, you never call me, bro. Call me, bro. And I tell you, it's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Beer of the week. It's getting cold outside, so let's drink some good winter beer, right? This week we have Oco Coco Nitro. Love it, love it, love it. Garage grade four and a quarter out of five bottle caps. This is a truly great wintertime beer because it warms the bones and it warms the soul, my friend. And it's fun to say. That's right. Oco Oco Coco Coco Nitro is an imperial double stout by River City Brewing in Spokane, Washington. Mm -hmm. This smooth, creamy, full-bodied stout is brought to us by our very best garage friends. First up, we have, oh yeah, Captain, this is one of my favorite people, Kelly in Louisville, Kentucky. Listen closely to what Kelly has to say. Mm -hmm. She says, I love your show, and it's a great listen while she prepares boring legal documents. Yeah. The next time we do an Indiana case, she highly recommends seeking out something from Three Floyd's Brewery. She likes Yum Yum and Gumball Head. Kelly, Kelly, you are absolutely spot on. Yum Yum. I'm on Untapped. Look me up. My handle, of course, is True Crime Garage. That's big news. You're dropping that now. The veil's dropping, yes. If anyone wants to look me up on there and send me a friend request, go for it, and I may consider it. But if you are my friend on there, you will see that I have graded Gumball Head a very strong 5 out of 5. Gumball Head is an American Pale Wheat Ale, and Three Floyds is a very cool brewer. This is a ver- There's a very nice grocery store in Clintonville, which is near my neighborhood. And once in a while, they get Gumball Head in. And they sell it limit two 12-ounce bottles per person. Mm. And I think it's like $3 a bottle. And I always buy two. In fact, one time I bought two. And then I went outside to my car. I sat in my car for like 20 minutes. 
I took my hat off and I went back in and I bought two more. Did the guy say, I recognize your jib? <laughs> Get out of line, sir. You've already bought two. Next up, we have Rebecca in Fayetteville, Arizona. Let's go down under and say hi to Blair in Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, Australia. Next, we have King Kenny in Pensacola, Florida. All hail the king. Also, thanks to Robert down in Georgetown, Texas. Mm-hmm. How about a fellow Buckeye captain? We have Kristen oh. in oh. Perrysburg, Ohio. And last but not least, go we Bucks. have Gareth in South Yorkshire, United Kingdom. And Gareth says, have a beer on me. And he recommends a beer from Black Sheep Brewery, if we can get a hold of it. Gareth loves the show. He says we have good quality production. Well, you can thank the captain for that one. That's and, why That's why you can't fire me. That's right. And he says we have good in-depth information and good banner. And I'll go ahead and take most of the credit for that stuff. <laughs> So I like to do a mental everyone get in a line and stick your hand up and I'll do a running high five real quick. So thank you, Kelly, Rebecca, Blair, King Kenny, Robert, Kristen, and Gareth for buying us around for this week's show. And if you'd like to support the beer fund and fuel the garage, just go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. And like always, we like y'all jib. And we're a little rowdy today because it is season three finale. And I've had four coffees. Four coffees and ten beers. And let's get right to it. That's right. Dump out your coffee, gather around, grab a chair, grab a six-pack of beers, and let's talk some true crime. This is True Crime Garage. And this is the case of the Ted Murders. October of 1974. I was a pharmacy student at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. I was at a city park waiting for a bus to take me back up to campus. The bus was late. I was getting frustrated. And then this tan Volkswagen drove by very slowly. The cute driver kind of looked at me as he went past and then he stopped and backed up and leaned over and rolled down the passenger window and asked me where I was going. I told him I was going up to the U and he said, me too, hop in. So I opened the door and got in. The first thing that I noticed was the inside passenger door handle was missing. And he leaned over and pulled the door shut. But I wasn't alarmed. I figured college kid, college car, things fall off. He looked like a college student. He was dressed nice, had a green pullover, sweater on, nice slacks. Lighthearted, we just had the normal conversation that strangers would have. I told him, my name's Rhonda and I'm a pharmacy student. What are you studying? He told me his name was Ted and he was a law student. In just a couple of blocks, he turned a way that wasn't the normal route to the university. And I asked him about that and he was very polite and asked my permission if it would be all right if he took a little detour. He told me he had to run an errand up by the zoo and I told him that would be fine. I didn't care. I thought I would still be home faster than if I had waited for the bus. And then we went right on past the zoo. And I said, hey, I thought we were taking me to the zoo. And he said, no, I said, near the zoo. That road goes over the hill and drops down into Parley's Canyon, which is the main highway back into the city. Nothing's gone off, we're just having fun. 
we get to the bottom of that canyon, he should have turned right to go towards campus. And instead he turned left and started driving up another canyon. And as he's driving, he's kind of looking at parking places and side roads. The conversation started to go weird then because he stopped talking to me. And I'm still trying to make idle conversation. And, and I'm thinking that he's probably looking for a place to pull off and park and wants to make out. And I don't know him and I'm not really a make out person, but he's still a cute law student and I don't want to offend him and I don't want to embarrass myself. So I'm thinking of how do I get out of this situation? And then he pulled into a parking place and, and parked the car and turned it off. And then he turned in the car seat so he's kind of facing me and he leaned in really close. I thought he was going to kiss me. Instead he said very quietly, do you know what? I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And he put his hands on my throat and started squeezing. My first thought was, it has to be some kind of a joke. This guy's got a weirdest sense of humor. But that was just maybe a fraction of a second because I realized he was squeezing too tightly. He was serious and I was in trouble. And there's no door handle. We had a little small battle in the car, but I went unconscious. I did as much of a fight as you can put up when you're running out of air. I'm gonna die. I thought I was gonna die right there in the car, but he had other, other plans. Nineteen seventy-four in the great state of Washington, we have a situation here, big time situation. Women are being attacked, some are disappearing, and some are found dead. We have about six or seven women ranging in age from eighteen to twenty-two years old who are attacked. Now these are not all the same deal here. One woman is attacked in her sleep. She's sleeping in a house that she shares with several other roommates. She's attacked and abducted from her bed, and this is in the uh, University of Washington area. There's a 19-year-old that disappears from the Evergreen State College, an 18-year-old that disappears from Central Washington State College campus one night in April 74, and then there's a 22-year-old, her name is Kathy Parks. She disappears from Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon. So just to mention a few of them. So these... These young women are disappearing from different college campuses and other areas, and no one really suspects that these things are connected, right? Some young adults change gears on a dime and move away. So, you know, some of these people, they're not really missing right away. Right. And maybe there's really not a lot of great explanations for this, but they are disappearing. And now there are a few detectives that do think that these cases could be connected or something bigger is going right, on something here. being related but of course no one is going to connect the kathy parks disappearance from oregon state but that is all going to change very quickly here because we're going to talk about a place called lake sammamish all right lake sammamish is a beautiful state park located eight miles east of seattle and king county it's a big park it's about five it's 512 acres Uh, And it has quite a bit of waterfront access with boat launches and, of course, hiking and picnicking. 
and when you look up Lake Sammamish on Wikipedia, the they list three major events as occurring at Lake Sammamish. Now, the first one they list is a Pirates vs. Vikings massive water balloon fight, which is held annually. Sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, and then not a lot of fun for the other events because the next event they list is wife killer Randy Roth drowned his fourth wife, Cynthia, at Lake Sammamish. Mm. And then uh, this event. Um, so continuing on back to 1974, as said, Lake Sammamish is a beautiful state, par- state park with all of that fresh water. And of course, it's going to be very busy in the warm months of summer with plenty of young adults looking for fun in the sun. But July 14, 1974, the state park was extremely busy. They estimate that there were about 40,000 to 50,000 people there that day. Now, part of that was due to several large businesses holding their company picnic picnics on that Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. But most of that is because of the great weather. It was 90-degree temperature that day, plenty of sunshine. So around noon, a young man described as about 25 years of age with blondish hair, approached a pretty 22-year-old woman. The woman's name is Mary Osmer. Uh, She was over in a grassy area. This is near one of those company picnics that were going on. The stranger said hi and asked Mary for her help. He was wearing blue jeans, a white T-shirt, and his arm was in a sling. He is asking for help with his sailboat. He needs to load it onto his car but of course he's unable to because of his arm. Right. And to get a visual, I mean, think about silence of the lambs when Buffalo bill uh, was moving that um, couch and he Mm -hmm. asked the lady for help. So, so she agrees to go help him. He, he seems like somebody that seems like a good person and might be in need of help. And they walk over together to his vehicle. And he has a bum arm, right? Mm -hmm. So, and he's got a little VW bug. Uh, but the problem that here is she immediately notices, Mary notices that there's no sailboat. And uh, he says, well, the sailboat. Well, and how many bugs could tow a sailboat? Well. It, Depends on how big the boat is. It's a small be. boat that you he wants to load it up on top of the vehicle. Oh, okay. More like a kayak. Yeah. Okay. So he says that, you know, the boat is, it's up at my parents' place, which is we just got to drive up the hill here and pick it up. And she, she's a little worried about this situation. Had the boat been there, she probably would have helped the guy. Right. Um, but because the boat's not there, she's not very eager to leave the group that she's with. And she mentions that she's already running late. She, she's supposed to be meeting her parents around uh, 12, 1220 that day. And so she's already running late for that. So she kind of politely backs out of helping the man. And the man, she says, is polite. And he thanks her and apologizes that the boat wasn't right there with the vehicle. And he even walks her about halfway back to that grassy area where they were. Um, This VW bug is going to become very important, as we will see later. Um, But another of the young adults that was there that day enjoying the beautiful weather was 23-year-old Janice Ott. Uh, she's a thin, petite, five-foot-tall with uh, long, straight, blonde hair. Mm-hmm. Um, she rode to the lake that day by herself, uh, and she rode her bike. She had a yellow Tiger 10-speed bike. Uh, and at the beach, she was she was once she was there, you know, she gets there, gets her things out, uh-huh. puts her bike away, and she goes down to the beach area. They have plenty of waterfront, as we had mentioned. 
And she's going to throw out her towel and strip down to the bikini and start sunning, you know, like everybody else is doing on that 90 degree day. Sunbathing. Right. Mm -hmm. So about this time, a uh, stranger now described as wearing white shoes, a white T-shirt and shorts. But again, his arm is in a sling, walks to the beach and he goes up to Janice Ott. He's probably wearing jorts. He asked if she would help him load his sailboat. But this time, he immediately states that the boat is not at the vehicle. It's at his parents' house, which is up the hill in Issaquah. Now, the girl says, Janice, she says, well. real quick, though. Isn't this how it normally happens, though, when somebody asks for a favor? Like, it always turns turns into something bigger. Yeah, it's a small favor at first. I just need you to help me get this boat on to my car all you got to do is lift it up and then all of a sudden there's all these different obstacles but by the way we got to go to my parents house and then yeah it's going to be in the basement so we got to get out of the basement and janice is very nice you know she says well i'm from issaquah so no big deal i will help you uh with this boat i understand we're gonna have to take your vehicle and drive up the hill and and find the the and this is a handsome gent right uh, yeah, well, it, actually, and that's exactly what Mary Osmer says, the, the first woman that was approached that we know of. She's, she commented that he was, uh, she found him to be attractive, and that's why he, she agreed to help him. Mm-hmm. I guess ugly people don't get helped, <laughs> according to Mary. Um, sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, nobody helps me with anything. Nobody's hel- held a door for me ever. You got a nice jib. Don't worry about it. So Janice agrees to help this young man, and um, she does state, you know, I rode my bicycle to the beach, so if we're going to take your car somewhere, yeah. I'm hoping that I can, you're, you know, put the bike in your car, or we have a, a way to... <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just thinking about that stupid movie, you know. 40-year-old virgin? Yeah, you got a big trunk, because I'm going to put my bike in it. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's insensitive. Now, the park is extremely busy that day, right? Right. 40,000, maybe 50,000 people. I mean, this is a small people. city, basically. Yeah, that's a, that's a ton of people there that day. And so you can imagine that the beach is a little crowded. And Janice, being a very attractive young woman, wearing a bikini, sitting there sunbathing, of course, some people are going, going to take notice to this. And because the beach is so crowded, there are people sitting and lying rather close to one another. So... Mm-hmm. Some of the other people on the beach, they overhear this conversation and they're witnessing, you know, this interaction between these two strangers. And during this interaction, several people, you know, kind of eavesdropping, notice that they, the two introduce one another. And, you know, she says, my name is Janice. And the stranger says, uh, my name is Ted. Um, and then ask her for the help. Well, about 1230. So this is very quickly after this strange man approached Mary. You know, Mm -hmm. this is within 15 to 20 minutes after she had denied him the help of the sailboat. And now he's already moved on to the next woman and he's, he's receiving help from her seemingly because she's getting up, collecting her belongings. She's asked about her bicycle. And now about 1230, Mary Osmer, she sees the man that she spoke to. Uh, who introduced himself as Ted to Janice. Right. She sees the two of them walking together, and Janice has her bicycle with her. Right. Now, they go off, and we don't, we don't know where they go. Uh, to this date, we still don't exactly know where they went. But there are a few things that we would later be able to surmise what probably took place. 
this Ted person took Janice somewhere. And in the course of, of getting there or once there, he unleashed a sneak attack on her, uh, probably using a crowbar to strike her over the head. Right. And then he would tie her up, uh, maybe even use handcuffs. But he, he was able to control her in a way that he would yeah, be physically yeah. leaving her uh, alive, whether she's unconscious or, or just knocked out or, or, or bound right. and, and held captive somewhere. We don't know, but we do know that he left her somewhere and she was alive when this took place. Now, around three o'clock this afternoon, so we're just talking about two and a half hours later, Diane Watson is near a concession stand. This is one that is closest to an east. They have, you know, multiple restrooms at this uh, park, and this is closest to one of the eastern restrooms. Now, she notices another young woman. This is Denise Nasland. Now, Denise is at the beach with her boyfriend and another couple. Uh, Diane also notices a young man in his mid-20s, and this young man is staring at her. And this is like an intense stare, you know, the kind of stare that you you not only notice it, but you can kind of feel it. Uh-huh. Um, I normally so, don't get those. <laughs> seconds later, the young man is asking Diane if she would help him load his sailboat onto his car. Now, Diane would later say that the man sounded embarrassed, uh, probably because he was, you know, a man asking a woman for help, but he, he did also have his arm in the sling. Now, Diane does decline helping the man. At approximately 4 p.m., another young woman is approached by the stranger with wearing the arm sling. This time he asked Lori Adams if she would help him launch his boat. You know, he's changing his what he, you know, his needs now. Right. Would you help me launch the boat? Now, she quickly declines. Well, he, he already got the boat. Now he's bringing it back. He has to launch it. At 4.30, this man approaches 18-year-old. She's five foot four inches tall, this Denise Naslin. Uh-huh. Now, Denise had an argument with her boyfriend earlier. She was there with her boyfriend and another couple, and she's now off sitting by herself. This is near that east concession stand that we spoke of. Denise leaves with the young man that approached her. This is witnessed by a Seattle Police Department employee. So this is these are all things that we know happened right but, right but denise was there with her boyfriend correct and so they, they get in a fight because you know men are stupid and we ruin fun events yeah like it, the beach. well and they're also young people you know young yeah. people argue uh, about nothing sometimes yeah and then uh i don't know anything about arguing about nothing i don't know what you're talking about um so then she gets in a fight with her boyfriend and then she's left with this uh ted guy yeah, yeah. So earlier this Diane, she noticed the guy that approached her and um, she sees this other young woman sitting over by that East concession stand. Now, this is when uh, another, this is the Seattle Police Department employee notices the young man going up to Denise and sees the two of them leaving together. They're leaving the area together. Now, Denise is never seen alive again after this situation. Mm-hmm. So what we know now is that these two women both disappeared, both of them about the same age. And we know that this quote-unquote Ted person, who is walking around introducing himself as Ted, asking for help with his sailboat, he's approached multiple women um, time and time again, and he's received two offers for help. 
and both of the young ladies that help him, they're not going to be seen again the rest of that day or, or ever again live. What we can figure out here is this Ted person had taken Janice somewhere and kept her somewhere alive, probably knocked out, probably bound, and then later he brought Denise to the same location. What took place after this is a little uncertain, but we know we will know from later attacks and later things that we will see in the case of the Ted murders that he probably attacked both of them and terrorized them together and separately. Uh, this was a person that would 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 rape women as he terrorized them, and we have a situation here where we now have two people being held captive and being terrorized together. One of them is going to witness the other one being killed right in front of them, right. and that in itself is some kind of form of mental torture. I mean, that's horrific. Well, and you're talking about a sadist of the highest level here. Um, someone that, that extremely enjoys the, the panic and the terror uh, that he's instilling into others. Well, yeah, and, and the control. For days and days, the people in the community, the law enforcement, they are looking for these two young women. They, they've gone missing. They've disappeared. Now, it is not until September of 74, this is you know roughly less than two months later, a hunter stumbles upon some human remains. This is about a mile from the Lake Sammamish. Uh, the FBI is called in for these to investigate. And the FBI, the FBI would spend days and days there. I, th- I believe they spent like nine or ten days there searching the area. Mm-hmm. And what they end up coming up with in the end is that they find most of the bones of the two victims, this being the two women that, young women that were missing. Um, they do not find Janice's skull, uh, but they find most of her, her remains. Uh, they find women's clothing that is unrelated to the two victims. And they also find some bones of an unknown female victim. And of course they find a crowbar. And that's why I had suggested earlier that maybe a crowbar was used in an attack to knock out the, the women or to, or to beat the women. Right. But this will all go back to those earlier investigations of the disappearing women from the different campuses, college campuses. And this is going to lead to something here, and it's going to give the police a break, so to speak. And it's also going to give the community, it's going to open up the eyes of the people in the community. And we'll get into that right after this beer. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, 
Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Break. And we're back. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. So we're talking about the Ted murders and how does this whole Lake Shamamish thing fall into place with what we were talking about earlier? Well, we have a community where we have different young women being attacked. Some of them are disappearing from campuses around mm-hmm. the area. And as we said, the community doesn't really know that there's something going on here where there's links to these different cases. However, the eyes are opened after this attack at Lake Sammamish on that day where there's 40 to 50,000 people and well, two yeah. beautiful young women go missing and they're missing for days and days and weeks and weeks. And about two months later, their, their remains are found by the FBI. Yeah. Again, a lot of people, you have two pretty ladies that go missing and, but we have this odd character that was seen talking to the ladies. And that's, what's interesting about this. We, we, we now have a community that knows something is going on. And we know that we have someone that is capable of not only killing people, but capable of taking two women at the same place at the same time and, and pulling that off somehow. But on top of that, we had these detectives that thought that there might be something going on, but they have no leads, right, Mm -hmm. Captain? They have nothing to go on because in most of these cases, there's either no witnesses or there's no bodies that are being found. And now, we, well, until the yeah, until the lake. Um, now we have remains that have been found, mm-hmm. and on top of that, we have witnesses, and we have something for the police to work with. We have a lead here. Now somebody is going around a young man that appears to be in his mid twenties, maybe twenty five, and they have several descriptions of him. Mm-hmm. He's going around and he's talking to multiple women. These are descriptions that are that are coming forth from women that were present that day, as well as onlookers and other beachgoers and people that were at the park that saw this person going up to these different women. And not only that, but you also have a women that actually talk to him, talk to this man named Ted. They're going to help this man. So you're going to get a better eyewitness account of those events than just some onlooker that saw this guy from 50 feet away. And the police do something very interesting here. Um, They do a call to action to the community. And because they realize that there are so many people at the park that day, and they have a couple bits of information. They have this one thing where the guy is using the name Ted. Well, that very well could be a fake name. Mm -hmm. Uh, You Actually, I would assume that it would be a fake name. And I believe that they probably did too as well. Um, There's nothing wrong with fake names. But on top of that, they have a vehicle description from Mary Osmer, who walked over to the vehicle and said, no, I can't help you. Um, And she saw this same guy. She saw him walking off with Janice Ott just a half an hour later. Yeah, and the vehicle is a uh, VW Bug, but odd color, tan. Well, some people call it a tan, and other times it's been referred to as a bronze color. Mm -hmm. Um, Still odd, though. I mean, that's not the typical. When I think VW Bug, I'm thinking... Yellow. Red or I always yellow. Think yellow yeah. for some reason. Uh, but th- what the police do is they're going to reach out to everybody in the community using uh, their media sources, 
And they're going to say, you know what? We want anybody that took photos that day. You know, maybe you saw something and you have something to report, but if you didn't see anything and you happen to take a bunch of photos that day, bring us all of your photos and we would like to look through them. Why? Mm. Because what they're trying to see here is they, they know what kind of vehicle they're looking for and they know roughly where the vehicle was parked. So they want to, they're going to scour through all these pictures and they're going to try to see if they can spot the vehicle because they're hoping maybe they can get a picture of the man standing near the vehicle. Yeah, or the license plate. Exactly. But the other thing that we're going to have here in the investigation is we are learning about body dumping. And this is the FBI as well. Mm -hmm. And what they learn from this situation is that in slightly less than two months' time, the bodies that had been dumped there, they had not only fully decomposed to that of skeleton remains, but the man calling himself also had one other thing on his side. Animals had scattered the remains all over the hillside. And some of this was pretty good distances as well. Remember, we said it took them over a week to find everything that they, they ended up compiling at the end. And that ended up being the remains of two, of, I'm sorry, two identified persons, one identi- unidentified victim, as well as the possible murder weapon, the crowbar. Right, not full remains of a third victim, but, you know, just, I think, fragments. It was, you know, but then one of the victims was missing the skull, which is very odd as well. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if the cops, I wonder if the FBI just assumed that because these victims were found in the wilderness, if maybe that animal just went off with it. I mean, I know that's a little gory and graphic, but... That was no. their, they, they had actually figured that out. Um, they, there were probably markings on some of the bones that would indicate such activity taking place. Mm-hmm. And they really kind of just surmised that whoever dumped them just left the bodies there and walked away from them. And whatever had happened to the bodies during the deco- decomposition process right, right. was that animals had scattered these pieces uh, throughout the hillside. The other interesting thing to me is, that the law enforcement, FBI, or the cops, they also, you know, not only looking through these pictures, hoping to get license plate or a visual of this man, um, they also were compiling a list of guys named Ted, mm-hmm. and not just assuming again that if uh, that that this um, you know perpetrator used a uh, uh, alias. Well, and that's where the investigation took a big spin where before they were just investigating these random attacks that were taking place at different college campuses. But the reason that they're able to make a link to this Lake Sammamish is that the, the victimology here, you have victims that they look similar. They're all of the same age. They're college age girls. They're young, attractive women. Mm -hmm. This would be this person's victim type. And so that's why they end up starting to call this case, the Ted murders. Because that's the only thing they have to go off of is this person introducing himself as Ted. And at the time, too, we have to discuss, you know, we have the FBI and we have persons involved in the FBI that are used to investigating these type of cases, these serial murder cases. And one thing they start discussing amongst themselves is why would this individual, if he is linked to these attacks at Lake Sammamish, why would he jump, make the leap from these seemingly very successful murders that he's done where there's no witnesses, where there may not even be a body found, there's no evidence, no leads. Mm-hmm. Here's someone that seems to be very good at what they're doing, and now all of a sudden he's 
putting himself and doing this double event, which is extremely risky behavior. Yeah, like we said, uh, forty to fifty thousand people, uh, and then you're taking two victims. You know, it's very, it's very like you said, risky behavior to get getting caught if the other crimes are connected to this. And for decades, people would speculate about this and they would wonder, you know, why make this leap? Was this something that this Ted person set out to do that day? Was he, did he wake up with the plan of going and taking two women uh, and putting them together and terrorizing them at the same time? Or did he just go to this event and, you know, you know, his um, sickness, his addiction for murder, did it come to the surface and he just couldn't control himself. And one thing that I heard brought up, which is interesting, you know, a lot of these, they say sometimes these serial killers try to one up each other, um, that there's like some of them that kind of compete or that they read and study other serial killers. And there's things that they want to mimic or, or do better Mm -hmm. than, than what they've seen other killers do. Now, Jack the Ripper did a double event, uh, back in his day. And uh, there's even been some, this is off the subject here, but there's it's, even been some. It's weird to call it an event. He did a double murder. Yeah. And and in Jack's situation, he he the thought is that he killed one woman on one side of town and then very quickly went to the other side of town and killed another woman. There's been an interesting theory that's come out within the last year or two that speculates that Jack the Ripper was actually two people working together and that were both linked close to the case and being investigated at the time. And maybe that they came up with this idea that, okay, you kill you one half of Jack Ripper, go to this side of town Mm -hmm. and kill this girl. And then you're there at the scene of the crime. So you're, you're almost a witness to this event, right? So you cannot be a suspect in the other killing that took place on the other side of town. That's committed by the other right one half of Jack the Ripper, right? You know, uh, this situation though, I don't, I don't know that this was the Ted person trying to outdo Jack the Ripper, or if this was something that he read about and fantasized about doing that, that's regarded as actually, that's the number one theory is that this was something that he, he wanted to up the stakes, that this was something that he wanted to do, that he always desired to take two victims at the same time. Well, yeah. If you're getting some sensation from one murder then you know up up the ante get double the sensation from a double murder yeah and they they suspect that he always wanted to kill one victim in front of the other victim um I, i'm going to go off on my own little thing here i think what what i see out of this character is i think i see someone that's just outright addicted to the act of capturing the women mm-hmm. and terrorizing them and murdering them and i think it's it's like a drug to this person. And I think what happened was he went there that day with the expectation of abducting one victim and maybe leaving afterwards. Uh, however, I think once he got there and there's so many people, there's so mm-hmm. many gorgeous young women that are his victim type. And I think that he got there and he, he couldn't, it's like a kid in the candy store. He couldn't pick out just one. Uh, I mean, not only that, we see him going up to woman after woman after woman after woman. I mean, he went up to eight or nine different ladies that day and he ends up taking two. I think he just really wanted to kill them all, you know, too many victims. And he wanted, he, there were too many to choose from. 
So he would allow himself to. Well, in fairness, he has to find somebody that's willing to help him. Mm-hmm. And as, as I said, he approached woman after woman, and he allowed himself to. Who's to say that had he not reached whatever level of gratification that he was hoping to reach or that high that he was chasing when he went there to the park that morning, who's to say that after two, that if he hadn't reached that high, that there wouldn't have been three or four that same day. The King County police, they're finally armed with a detailed description of their suspect as well as his car. They start posting flyers throughout the Seattle area and a composite sketch was printed in regional newspapers and broadcast on local television stations. Now the tips start coming in and they don't just come in. I mean, they are pouring in. The police are receiving approximately 200 tips per day because Mm. of the composite sketch as well as the information about the vehicle and what had taken place at the park that day. Now amongst sprinkled into those uh, sprinkled into those tips are a few that we have to bring up. Okay. There's one really interesting one. First of all, it's a uh, university of Washington psychology professor. All right. So this tip number one. Yep. This professor calls in the tip and says, you know what? I have a student at, at the university of Washington and he's kind of an oddball and he's in my class and he has a VW bug and he looks like the sketch that I'm seeing on the news. And his name is Theodore Bundy. And here's tip number two. So sprinkled in with all those other tips, we have a lady by the name of Ann Rule. Mm-hmm. Now she comes forward and says the same thing. You know, I worked with this guy at this crisis hotline. He's, he's my partner, I, it, which is weird because he's a very nice guy and we're friends. Um, we're not, yeah, this is a, a crisis, crisis hotline. Crisis hotline. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. Ooh, it's too uh, early. Um, no, but it's a, it's basically like a suicide call in, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you're feeling like you're going to commit suicide, you call in. So, so it's, it's odd that, okay, one, well, we know it's Ted, We know there's a guy named Ted so that he has that going against him. Uh, we also, but it's, and he has a bug. But could you imagine if you're working this basically a suicide hotline and you're working with this guy named Ted and you hear about these horrific murders, how, how much that would play with your psyche where, well, why would he be helping people not die if, but just to go murder people? Well, and think about this too, from Ann Rule's perspective. When do you think that most of those crisis phone calls come in? They, the majority of them are probably coming in in the late evening, nighttime. Uh-huh. So picture this. She is alone with this Ted person, this Theodore Bundy. And yeah, they actually lock you in. They're working side yeah. by side, manning the phones together for all hours of the night. And not only that, they're, she said, we're, we're friends. You know, we've gone to lunch together. Yeah, he's a charming guy. Yeah, and she's a little bit older at the time, and she she's doing that to just kind of be a good person and donate her time. But the the crisis hotline, what they would do is they would pair these older adults with uh, college students that wanted to donate their time as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether they're trying to gain experience for things, I mean, we're seeing. Well, it looks this, good on the resume. This person, if he m- matches up, if he's the same Theodore Bundy, this is somebody that is obviously taking psychology classes at uh, Washington University. Right. Do we have an, a third tip? The third tip is, and I'm I'm going to give a fake name here because. This person, I, I know their real name, and you can, if let's, you look on let's the... Let's use the captain. 
That's a it, good fake name. Well, well, I have a fake name for it. Okay. okay. Uh, but here's my little warning to everybody. If you want to, you can go out and you can find her real name if that's that important to you. This person would go on later to write a book and she did not use her real name in the book. So I don't think it's fair for me to use her real name here. So right. uh, her, her fake name is Liz Kendall. Now, Liz Kendall, she says that uh, I have a kind of on and off again boyfriend and his name is Ted Bundy and he matches the description mm-hmm. as well as he drives the vehicle that that was said to be at the park that day. Um, and she says she does. She she outwardly says to the detective on the phone, I don't suspect that he's the killer. I, I don't think he's capable of anything like that, but well, this, I mean, she's having a, a sexual intimate relationship with this individual. So one would hope that, you know, you don't pick the worst partners in the world like that. Yeah. And what happens is, you know, she says she doesn't think it's actually him that he, he couldn't kill anybody. He's too nice of a guy to do anything like that. But because he looks so much like the drawing, and because he has the same or similar vehicle, she felt compelled to call in the well, tip. Right. He looks like the drawing. He has the car and it's the same name. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is the mind um, bender for me. Could you imagine a guy in the Seattle, Washington area named Ted guys, a little down on his luck, right? His name's Ted handsome man. And he has a tan VW bug. And then this report comes out. But but you're not the killer. You don't have anything to do with it. You're right. just saying supposed but, story, right. but how hypothetically. Many, how many Ted's, and not even a tan VW, oh, VW bug, but just any Ted with a bug in that area, what the heck their brain was going through at the time. Like People constantly just like, oh, there's Ted with his bug. Just giving you the dirtiest looks and you're just like, this wasn't me. It wasn't me. So I know what's going on right now. Okay. Mm -hmm. We have listeners sitting at home. They're in their car. They're on the subway. They're at work and they're going, wait a second. We're talking about these murders that took place at the lake. We're talking about murders and disappearances that took place at places at these different campuses. Mm -hmm. And now we got three people, three people that call in and they, we have hundreds and hundreds of tips but three that are saying specifically Theodore Bundy. And of right. course we can look back 40 years later and go, well, no shit, Sherlock. Uh, why didn't you start piecing this together? Right. The problem, like the captain said, is we have over 200 tips coming in per day. And now Robert Keppel, who was one of the lead investigators for the FBI at the time on the Ted murders case in his defense, in their defense years later, he writes in his book, the, the specifics of what they were dealing with at the time. So by the time of night, by June of 1975, here's okay. what they're dealing with. This is, you know, less than a year after the Lake Shamamish murders. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're dealing with 3,500 sus- 3,500 suspect names gathered throughout June of 1975. And those are just Ted's. Well, not entirely. Those are just suspects that have been called in, whether th- whether they're a suspect uh-huh. because a detective has put them on the list or because a tipster called it in and put right, them right. on the list. Or maybe but, a, another police department said, hey, we got this suspicious guy. His name's not Ted. But mm-hmm. 3,500 people, that's a lot of people to sift through. Mm-hmm. Now, on top of that, here's some other things that they're looking at in this case. 
They have 5,000 mental patients that were released between the years of 1964 and Mm -hmm. 1974. We also have 41,000 registered owners of Volkswagen. Say that again, the the mental patients. There are 5,000 mental patients released between the years of 1964 and 1974. So that's a decade's time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5,000 would be a lot if we said it was 10 months or 12 months, but but it's over the course of a decade. Yeah, or if it's just all one day. Yeah. Yeah, like, just open up the doors. All right, see you guys later. Uh, Everybody's better. There's 41,000 registered owners of Volkswagens. 41,000 mm, very popular car back then. You also My have, mother had one. You also have th- 300 campus vendors at the University of Washington. You have 2,162 guests that stayed at a nearby hotel uh, of Lake Shamamish of that weekend. Right. So, that, so th- those are people so, that came into the area and then left. Right. So again, if we if we uh, take away the attacks and the murders that were happening on the college campuses and just look at this as a you know just an individual isolated event or murder, I just use your word. Mm-hmm. Um, then if if we just isolate it, then this could just be a commuter. And where are they coming from? They they could be coming from six hours away. 12 hours away who knows and i think if you're talking about that they only had 200 tips come in total and one or two of them are of this theodore bundy person that matches the description with the mm, with this the college vehicle, this college student basically right? that they would probably put that together a lot sooner than what they had however we're talking about as far as tips go a needle in a haystack mm-hmm. okay so well actually like a few needles yeah there's a haystack but it's still yeah. all pointing to the same guy i guess now, there are some officers that do follow up on these uh, TED uh, tips Tip, that are yeah, coming yeah. in. The TED tips. Um, so, But what they find, and, and I will fault them a little bit on this. I won't fault them for the needle in the haystack, but I'll fault them for this. They very loosely look into this situation. They basically look into the background of this Theodore Bundy, and they, they come up with the idea that it's very unlikely that a clean-cut law student with no adult criminal record, would be the perpetrator of this horrible, horrible crime. I mean, we're not talking about stealing something from the local market. This is a double murder with the potential of a third victim. Uh, This is the worst of the worst. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, profiling-wise, I think they viewed it as somebody that was taking their killings to the next level. And that's one of the reasons why the FBI started to encapsulate the other murders into this event and so to just think that okay if again if these murders are not connected it's still the first time this guy commits a crime that you know is a double murder that seems like a far jump Mm -hmm. i can see see the logic behind that thought yeah, a lot of the the more uh, schooled detectives and the the FBI, they do think that most of these crimes are linked. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them. There's not a lot of evidence pointing towards that, though. And the other thing, when we're talking about numbers and statistics here, another thing that they have to deal with is amongst those college campuses where these women disappeared. We're talking about different college campuses, right? There's over 1,500 people that transferred within that time period out of those schools. So you know, one could think. When, when a detective or a FBI agent is looking for somebody that did something out of character that's absolutely horrible, mm-hmm. most people, the normal behavior is to run as far away from that as possible. 
Yeah. And so, of course, they're going to look at anybody that transferred during those time periods has to be a suspect and has to find themselves on that suspect list, whether it be just for one of the cases or all of them. Well, we have some connections, you know, like you were saying, the 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 more I, I it wouldn't be experienced because it could just be an intellect thing that started seeing that there were connections. I mean, the, all female victims, all roughly around the same age. Uh, most had um, evidence of binding on the hands, mm-hmm. uh, uh, strangulation, probably in most of the cases. Well, but again, a lot of these bodies they've not found. And oh, right, right. But some of them one thing you missing. do, one thing you right. do have on your side that helps you link them is the short time frame. This is all taking place in the year of 1974. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's pretty quick. Um, so. We talked about, you know, running as far away from a normal person would run as far away from their bad deeds as possible. Uh, What we do see here is in August of 1974, this is just one month after the double event. uh, Ted Theodore Bundy, well, that's Theodore Bundy. uh, He gets accepted to the University of Utah and he moves to Salt Lake City. And during this transfer process for Mr. Bundy, the the police, the King County police and the FBI, they're going through, they're experiencing something new for the first time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Not only do they have a very complicated investigation, this is, this is what they're realizing. They're realizing that, you know what, all this paperwork and all these tips, following up on all these tips, categorizing them and putting them into some kind of order that makes sense is a whole nother job on itself. The paperwork yeah. portion and the record keeping actually became more cumbersome than the actual investigation. Why? Because guess what? If I'm a, if I get a good tip, well, I need to, I need to go and look through the other tips and see if I can match that up with anything. Yeah. Well, I'm, we're getting 200 tips a day. How do I sift through thousands and thousands of tips to see if that, if it matches up with anything else? Yeah. Because, and, and now with, today's technology we could take all those tips and we could put them into computer system and we could have the computer find those uh you know similarities there uh back in 75 this didn't happen right well what they come up with is they come up with a pretty intricate uh cataloging system that involves three by five index cards and I won't get into the whole intricacies of this this system that they come up with. You but don't want to like true crime dork <laughs> it out real quick. But but they three come hours up, later, and then what they did? They come up with a way that it's easier for the detectives and for the persons receiving the tips to categorize them and to link them together in a much more efficient way. Uh, one good idea that the FBI comes up with is that we need to come up with our one hundred best Teds. Okay. So Mm -hmm. whether your name is the captain or whether your name is Nick or whether your name is Ted, if you fit certain criteria, you could end up being labeled as one of the The 100 best Ted's. And we'll, we'll start narrowing it down from there. And the reason being is because you've got to conduct this investigation with a certain amount of haste because you, you expect at some point your suspect could flee, could end up in prison for something else. He could just go away and make it harder for you to have an investigation, to complete your investigation and find him. So they've got to figure out how they can speed this process up. Which, I mean, this is all interesting. Like the the search for this guy to be on the other side of things. Normally when we see a documentary, um, it's based off the, you know, how the serial killer grew up and his, his uh, relationship between him and his mother and stuff like that. 
to me, and then also once we it becomes a Hollywood movie, then it like we we glorify these people and we glamorize them, and it's they, oh they're so great. Um, I I prefer when you know th- there should be more documentaries on the actual investigation to find this person mm-hmm. because that's science, and and some of it it's just by happenstance or luck, but but to me that's super fascinating. Well, and what they, the reason being too, Captain, is that they would use these methods. They were like coming up with these methods as they, you know, as they were working the case, you know, they'd go home every night and go, well, how can we make this work better? How can we make this more efficient? And they came up with this whole process. Well, and and there's lives on the line. I mean, they're, they're, you know, innocent, you know, you know, let's by all counts, just assume they're sweet people. And, and and females nonetheless. So, I mean, so, you know, these detectives are going, the, we need to solve this. We need to get closer to solving this or there will be more victims. Yeah. And it's, but some of this process is still used today when you have a huge investigation. This is kind of the birthplace of these type types of investigations. So the best way to kind of describe this whole situation that they set up, their whole tactic here is think of a giant spreadsheet, Right. And you could have listed on it a hundred different guys. Okay. And on this spreadsheet, you're going to have different criteria. And some of those guys will check a certain number of those boxes. Well, Mm -hmm. the more boxes that you check, the higher your name is up on this 100 best Ted's list. And their thought was that they could put three detectives in charge of the 100 best Ted's and that those three detectives working that list over the course of one year should either be able to find the suspect mm-hmm. or clear all 100 names. So they've now put themselves on a, on a deadline for finding this Ted. And the way that you could work yourself up and be higher on the list is having more checks on those different criteria. You know, who actually has the name Ted or was, was this person known to use the alias Ted? Right. Uh, does this person have a VW bug? Do they have access to a VW bug? How close do they fit the description? Are they height, weight, age, things of that nature? How many tips are coming in with this person's name? Was he on the list because of a detective, because of the FBI, because of a tip that came in? All these different things will factor in to figure out how high and how likely you are to be the actual Ted that they are seeking. While the King County Police Department and the FBI are putting together their list of the 100 best Teds, we have our Ted Bundy that they are actually looking for, who is now located in Salt Lake City. Now, there's another event that's going to take place. This is in the late afternoon of November 8th. Ted Bundy approached an 18-year-old telephone operator. Her name is Carol Duranch. This is at one of those malls. This is at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah. Our Ted identified himself as Officer Roseland of the Murray Police Department. He told Carol Duranch that someone had attempted to break into her vehicle. Now, he's asked her to go with him back to the police department because he needs to take an official report of Mm -hmm. the incident and that she might even be able to identify the person that they believe they have in custody for the attempted break-in. She agrees to go with him um, and to go file this complaint. Now, on this trip, she does point out to uh, this officer, Rosalind, that he is not going the right direction. 
that that he was driving, you know, completely wrong direction to the right, police right. department. Uh, during this time, she is starting to get weary and she's starting to question who this person that she's act absolutely with. Well, and and it's not clear, but I don't think he's dressed as a police officer. No, he he's he's a uh, um, he's in street clothes. Correct. And she asked to, for him to provide some form of identification. Yeah, she, she should have done that before she got in the car. She said that he... And quit. she gets in the bug, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> Your off-duty police officer driving a, uh, a bug. Okay. I think she just thought he might have been some kind of detective. And uh, she asked for this identification. She says that he does kind of quickly flash a badge. Uh, and she does say that the badge looked pretty suspect. And when she started to get nervous and when she started to get visibly... It was one of those uh, star badges that just say sheriff on yeah, it. Yeah, you can just buy it at the uh, the local general store like there. a buck, yeah. Um, but she says once she becomes visibly nervous and she is thinking about getting out of this vehicle, he tries to handcuff her. He And what what's happening now, Captain, he's attacking her. And during this scuffle that's taking place in the vehicle, he slaps a handcuff on her and he's got one wrist handcuffed, right? He's trying to get the handcuff on the other wrist. What takes place is he accidentally puts the handcuffs, both cuffs on the same wrist. He thinks that he's got her where he wants her. Well, Mm -hmm. she's able to, she's able to continue the struggle and she later gets out of the, out of the vehicle and escapes this person that she was told was a police officer. Now you would think having abducted this woman pretending to be a cop and then in a scuffle inside the car and she escapes and she's even got a bit of evidence with her because she's got the, the handcuffs around her wrist now. Right. So she has something of yours. You would think that this, this person would then say, you know what? I've had enough for one day. This didn't go well for me. I I have somebody that can identify me. We got into an altercation. This is problematic for me, especially knowing the history that this person has. However, we're talking about somebody that cannot, that probably cannot control themselves or their desires. Right, the urge. So Ted Bundy then remembers that he knows that there is a production going on, you know, a theater production at a high school. Now, this is only about 19 miles away. Now, who are we talking about here? We're talking about Ted Bundy. We're talking about a person that loves to drive. Oh, really? We're talking, we're no, but we're talking about somebody that loves to drive and loves to troll and loves to kind of hunt for these victims, whether it be a person, you know, that he's going to use a ruse to obtain or if it's somebody that he's going to seek out. Uh, but this is somebody that is is always on the prowl. Yeah, he's constantly coming up with these cons. And these schemes of how can I find new victims? Well, for whatever reason, he had seen either seen a, um, he had got a hold of a brochure for one of these high school theater productions. Right. And this pops in his head immediately. You know, this potential victim just escaped. Now, I need to go find a new victim. I, I can't, I gotta, I gotta reach this high, this climax that I've been looking for, that I set out for. So now I need a new victim. So I'm going to drive 19 miles away. He drives to the Viewmont high school. Now this is where the theater production is just letting out. And there's, again, this is a situation where we have a lot of people at the high school. This is a high risk situation for this, this suspect. 
And when he's there, he is well, we going to... We don't have to, to call him the suspect anymore. Ted, right? <laughs> right, 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 sorry. <laughs> the um, suspect, like we don't know who he is. It's Ted. Well, Ted is later seen, he's seen pacing at the rear of the at the parking lot that's behind the theater portion of the school. Yeah. So he's seen by multiple people being back there. Now, while he's there, he's again approaching different people and he's asking them, you know, he's telling them that he's a police officer and that he, he's still going with it. Yeah. And that he he's uh. there's things going on with these vehicles and he needs you to come over and identify this car or he needs you to come over and speak with him. At some point, we do not know exactly how, but outside of the auditorium, he is able to lure Deborah Jean Kent. She's only 17 years old. She's a student at the Fumont High School. And he lures her and he takes her. Now, she's never seen again. Right. And we don't know if there was a con, you know, or if it, if it was just him grabbing her, you know, well, physically removing her. And we we can surmise that, yeah, that what, you're exactly right. One of two things happened. He either tricked her or he may have just panicked and just grabbed somebody and took off. Now, a lot of people would, your first th- thought is, well, how do you make this jump immediately from Carol Durant to this 17-year-old girl at the high school that's 19 miles away? Well, the, the body of Debbie, of Deborah Kent has never been found. Mm-hmm. However, what they do find in the parking lot, <clears throat> excuse me, of the high school, they find a small key. Well, what is that key? That key, when you put it into the handcuffs that were on Carol Durant's wrist, oh, yeah. it opens up the handcuffs. So we know that the same person that took Carol Durant took this 17 year old girl. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's some fascinating shit right there. Yeah, well, the thing is, what we're seeing here again, Captain, is what, in my opinion, is a guy that's absolutely addicted to this form of behavior, addicted to these acts and these events, these terrible events. What what are we seeing? We're seeing the same thing that we saw at Lake Shamamish, where he cannot stop himself. He cannot control himself. He's He's already at risk of getting caught because the potential victim gets away, and rather than coming down off of that high, he's got to go immediately to where he knows there's a large group of people and seek out a new victim, putting himself yeah, at I mean, bigger risk of getting caught. Yeah. He's even seen Le- walking and than, talking to people in the parking lot. Right, Less than 30, 40 minutes. He's already attacking a new victim. And what we're going to see here too, captain is repeated behavior. So what happened when things started getting hot in the state of Washington? <clears throat> well, all of he a sudden this, this Ted Bundy, had to transfer to Utah to go to school in Utah. He didn't need to transfer to go to Utah. He he transferred because there's he's seeing drawings of himself on the news yeah. and in the newspaper. People were even calling in and identifying him by name to the police. It got hot there, so he fled. Well, he's going to remain in Utah. However, he's going to start driving quite a big distance to achieve this high that he's always seeking. Okay. He's going to drive out to the state of Colorado and in 1975, he's going to attempt and abduct and attack and kill about five or six women in the state of Colorado in 1975. Now this is all going to come to a head because in 1975, August 16th, 
Ted Bundy is arrested. Now, I want to go ahead and throw out there, everybody's going to go, well, we know this story, Nick. No, I don't think that everybody does, because this is often reported as something as little as it was a routine traffic stop. Mm -hmm. And isn't that how you've always heard it reported? Yeah, yeah. I've heard it reported pretty common reported that way multiple times. And this is what I get very upset about. Almost like the cops got lucky. Exactly. Well, that's not what took place. That's not Mm. what took place at all. Well, speak the truth, my friend. Well, and here's the other thing that I want to, let me just kind of dive into this. It's called true crime garage. One thing that I get very angry about when we talk about Ted Bundy is there's, there's a few things that always come up. You know, people say, well, you know, he had a rough childhood. Well, that's actually not the truth. You know, a lot of people will say, well, that his his mother was well, pretending we, we to differ be his on sister. That. We well, differ on that. You got to let me vent for a little bit. The The thought here is that his mother was tr- pretending to be his sister because she had him out of wedlock at a young age. And that's something that you didn't do back then. So then his grandparents become his parents and mm-hmm. that they're going to he's going to grow up believing this for all of his childhood life. And that's absolutely not the truth. His mother and him moved away from the grandparents home when he was about six or seven. So maybe this took place, but if it did, it only took place for the very early stages of his life. And how did he know pretty quickly into his life that his mother was not his sister and was in fact, his mother was because when they moved to Washington, she got remarried and he was raised by her and his stepfather from a young age and though and her and his stepfather had four children so they he he had a more quote unquote normal childhood than most would agree with the other thing too is that there's this thought that his grandfather fathered him with his mother and that is absolutely there, there's no truth to that at all. That's at best. It's just a bad neighborhood rumor that may have come up. I don't know where it came along. I, I well, think it probably came along through the. Well, there's some validity to this because one of Ted Bundy's lawyers heard these claims and their um, office then investigated it. And he says on record that he feels like he had enough evidence to prove it, but he didn't have the smoking gun to say yes for certain that Ted Bundy's uh, grandfather was his father. I'm glad you brought that up because I had wondered, always wondered where that rumor or that story originated from. And maybe that's the birthplace of it. Um, but, but from what I've, everything that I've seen. Well, because afterwards mm-hmm. hindsight, it was like, how, how did this sicko happen? You know, everybody wanted to find these reasons. Oh, it was porn, you know, porno, you know, his addiction to porno or, Maybe he was dropped when he was a baby. They were trying to find all these answers, and I think that's where it came from. Well, maybe it's like a birth defect or you know some sort of um, incest. Well, yeah, society wants answers. You don't believe nobody wants to believe that a young, good-looking, somewhat seemingly successful college student, uh, law student, is going to go on and murder as many women as he possibly can. Right, um, but from everything that I've seen is that his mother had an on again, off again relationship uh, with this man for, for many years. And he fathered Ted Bundy and Ted got his last name from his eventual stepfather. However, the, his real father didn't want to have kids, didn't want to have a, didn't want to settle down and get married. And this, I don't have the the man's name in front of me, but it sounds like this is something Mm -hmm. that he did 
uh, more than once uh, throughout his lifetime. Um, but but the real reason for my venting here is that I believe things like that are over sensationalized. You know that they that they almost champion the killer when they when you see the biographies and when you see the documentaries on Ted Bundy. Both of those things usually come up about his mother pretending to be his sister. And they, they kind of gloss over it and give the impression that that took place over the course of his entire childhood. And that's mm-hmm. just not the case. Now, the thing that, that makes me angry is that when something good and something positive actually happens in a story like this, they don't spend any time on it. And this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the apprehension of Ted Bundy. This took place in the su- in a suburb of Salt Lake City. This is in Granger. Now, it, this is just good old-fashioned police work. And this is the stuff that should be championed when we're talking about stories like this. We have Officer Haywood. Now, who is he? He's just a le- local cop, but mm-hmm. he's a he's damn good at his job, right? I, my hat is off to Officer Haywood here because well, you know, he might have been a slouch, but well, he did this one thing good. Well, I believe that especially if you're in a smaller town like this, it is very important to your job as a police officer that you know your town and that you know your town's people and you know what's going on and in and around your town. Mm-hmm. Now, he's sitting there at the end of his shift and he's filling out his police log for the day and his paperwork, anything, you know, whatever they do at the end of their shift. And during the course of this, while he's sitting there, he sees this bug, this VW, pass him more than once. And he, this is not a vehicle that he recognizes from the town. Right, in the neighborhood. So immediately he's on alert. You know, when you, when you see somebody come into your town that you don't recognize the vehicle, this is good old-fashioned police work. And what's going on in this area is there is a home that is very close by where the officer is parked and he's filling out his paperwork. Now, who does this home belong to? This belongs to people that he knows that are on vacation. They're away. And the home is only being occupied by the two older teenage daughters. Now, he sees this VW, VW bug almost, you know, more than once, almost like like a shark circling its prey, where it, he he believes that, that this vehicle has an interest in that home. Right. And so now he's, he's very curious about this vehicle. Mm-hmm. So using his cop car, he's going to approach the vehicle and attempt to do a routine traffic stop. Mm -hmm. Well, the car does not want to pull over and this turns into a bit of a chase, but it's not like, it's not like a super crazy, you know, like you see on TV cops chase. Right. It Um, wasn't an OJ chase, but, but the, the person in the car clearly doesn't want to be pulled over. Eventually he's pulled over. And during the course of which the officer Haywood makes several observations. The first thing that he notices is that the the front seat of the VW bug is not it's not like secured it's not it's not screwed in which is which is extremely rare yeah that's um, odd yeah and so he starts to question the driver and he wants to know you know what's what's your backstory who are you and why are you here and the person driving the vehicle explains that his name is Ted Bundy and that he's a law student in college and that uh, he was just in town and he was he, he was in town to see a movie. Um, well, what movie were you seeing? And he was seeing the towering inferno is what Ted Bundy says. Well, the officer says he knows his town. The local theater is not showing that movie. 
So again, he's on high alert. He's not believing anything that this guy says, and he wants to search the vehicle. Once he searches the vehicle, he finds what he believes is a burglar kit. And inside this kit, there's, there's more other things here, but you, he sees pantyhose, uh, a flashlight, a ski mask, handcuffs, a crowbar, an ice pick. Uh, and he also finds quite a bit of gas receipts. And now that he has the car open, he's also noticed, noticed that the door latch handle is missing from the passenger side door. Right. Which is odd as well. And this Ted Bundy that he pulled over is dressed all in black. Well, here's some strange things here. He's thinking to himself, well, a young, a young, handsome college man who should be at college trying to pick up a woman. Instead, he's in the middle of this suburb driving around in the middle of the night dressed all in black. This doesn't make sense to me. And this is where uh, Ted Bundy is picked up and apprehended. And he's arrested on suspicion of burglary. And he, he would be asked by the officer, what are these items for? And he says, well, you know, I, I'm a skier. So that's why I have a ski mask. Um, right. Well, what's, yeah. what's the handcuffs for? You know, uh, well, I'm a law student and I use these in class too when we give our presentations. Uh, so Mr. Bundy's right. got he has an answer for everything. Yeah, right. uh, but regardless of his answers, he finds himself behind bars. All right, so now we got Ted Bundy in jail, and there's so much more to talk about this, so we're going to have to do that in another part. Yeah, I think that covers us for the Ted murders portion of this case. A little recommended reading for you today. Uh, I want to recommend The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. This is by Kevin M. Sullivan. Uh, I really like this book. This book came out just a few years ago, but one Mm -hmm. thing that we're always searching for, you know, it's like, you know, it's kind of like Jack the Ripper. There's a hundred books out there, right? Ted Bundy, there's there's so many books out there. And to be honest with you, there's only probably a handful, maybe 10 that are good, that are great books out there. This is <laughs> definitely two one handfuls. Right? So uh, the reason why this one's so good is it just came out a few years ago. And at first, my initial mm. thought was, oh, great, another Bundy book. This This Kevin M. Sullivan just wants to make a name for himself by telling the same old story that's been told a hundred times. That's not the case. There's plenty of new information in this book. So if you've read other Bundy books, this is one that you'll want to pick up. Uh, Plenty of new information. He does a really good job of taking later confessions and later discussions with Bundy, things that would happen much further down the line, and piecing them together with with the things that were missing from the investigations. Uh, And he's completing the story, if you Yeah, looking back on it, hindsight. Yeah, so that's The Bundy Murders, a a comprehensive history by Kevin M. Sullivan. You can pick that up by going to our website and click on the recommended page. We have our books listed there. Yeah. And uh, if you go to true, uh, true and click on our Amazon banner, you can buy anything. If you've seen on Instagram, I have my little diver captain. It's the captain divers helmet that was bought scuba, Steve scuba, <laughs> scuba captain uh, that was bought through Amazon and, and they, they kick a little love to us at no charge to you. So, and for everything True Crime Garage, check out truecrimegarage.com. Make sure you sign up on the mailing list and make sure you tell a friend about the show. It, it goes a long way. And all social media, follow us, Snapchat, now on, on what is it called? Uh, untapped. Untapped. Uh, you can follow Nick on, on Untapped uh, at True Crime Garage. If you follow me on there, don't judge me. Don't judge all the drinking that's going on on a Tuesday. There, Please don't. There will be judging. 
All right, that wraps up this show. We'll see you guys tomorrow. And until next time, be good, be kind, and don't let it The South Dakota Stories, Volume 5. South Dakota seemed like the perfect place to unplug. But I ended up connecting to the world around me. A world where each sunset was painted. Where I felt adventures pulse with every step. And where cold water trickling, pine swaying, and grunting bison became my favorite soundtracks. I just wish I didn't have to leave. There's so much South Dakota. So little time.